in this last formal session, it's my absolute pleasure to introduce Professor Angela Layton, whose work has been absolutely so important in thinking about what we're doing today. Uh, a 1986 book on Elizabeth Browning really brought in new ways of looking at a kind of wide range of that work, you know, followed by the 1992 study of Victorian poets writing against the heart, and then uh, a phenomenal you know, uh, anthology, which I think is at the back, you know, again, again waving at the bookstall at, at the back there. Um, Angela is also a, a practising, do you say practising poet? Is that right? That sounds a bit religious, I'm sorry, you know, it's a poet, she writes poetry. Um, so it's coming you know, at this work from kind of two different directions. And in this final session, you know, uh, with readings by, thank you so much, Sham, for all your work today. It's been brilliant. Um, we're going to look at uh, a range of kind of influences of women's poetry from Bat Browning onwards. Thank you very much, Angela. Thank you very much, Simon. Um, and I hope we've got, yes, we've got the doors open at the back. So we've let the some air coming in and out. And please, I know that's been a long day. Feel free to get up, you know, wander out, get some air if you need to, come back in. Um, and um, good. Um, I'm going to, going to, this is a sort of talk come reading. So there's going to be lots of poems read from EBB to the present day. Um, I hope it's a little bit lighthearted in places. Um, I was originally asked to do a poetry reading of my own poems, but I didn't really want to just do my own poems. So there'll be a couple of my poems in it, but mostly it's other people's. And I called it Women's Poetry After EBB. I'm going to call her EBB all the way through because it's shorter, <laughs> takes less time. Lost and Found. Who are you? Are you she who used to burn with bittersweet eros? or she who learned to master the art of losing, she who did dying well, beekeeper's waspish daughter, Amherst's bell. In this poem, we are in the valley of lost things. There were lost toys, lost conversations, lost memories but there were also lost poets, all women, though maybe not so lost as not to be found again. It's a poem by the contemporary American poet, A.E. Stallings, and I'm gonna come back to her at the very <coughs> end. And the title of the poem is Lost and Found. It's the title I'm going to use today. Poets like poetry, are lost and found, forgotten and remembered throughout history, as we know from the history of Elizabeth Barrett Browning, much read and loved till about the 1920s. I think we can probably all of us remember grandmothers who could recite sonnets from Portuguese by heart. But then a little bit forgotten, perhaps sidelined by modernism at the beginning of the 20th century, and more recently found again by feminist critics um, from the 1970s onwards. I remember as a young lecturer writing to 
the editor of Faber. Am I talking too loud or not loud enough? It's okay, is it? It's very hard to tell with these things. I remember writing to the editor of Faber in the early 1980s to suggest I might do a collection of EBB's poetry, and I received an abrupt reply in the negative. Posterity has spoken, he said. (laughs) But posterity is a fickle thing, as he himself might now be realising. I will name no names here. But of course, the art of losing also lies deep in the pleasure of remembering poetry, as when you go back to a loved poem and remember it again as if it was new. You remember its forgottenness. So today I'm going to take you on a journey by ear, so there's going to be no visual aids on this one, but I have my oral aid here, Sharon. Um, Take you on a journey through two centuries of women's poetry. So perhaps you can remember what you once or never knew, poems from EBB to the present. Sharon will help me vary the voice a little bit. Well, many years ago, I fell with delight on Cora Kaplan's 1975 anthology, Salt and Bitter and Good. The line taken from EBB herself, a curse from the depths of womanhood is very salt and bitter and good. Now, this was an anthology that directed a whole generation of us then discovering women's poetry and answered some of our curses to obtuse editors. But that's in the past. And today, there's a rich field to choose from. So rich that it's actually quite hard. I had to sit and think about this for a long time. Hard to think how to plot a route through women's poetry from EBB to the present. So as you'll see, I'm going to follow a slightly idiosyncratic route while exploring how women have addressed, praised, echoed other women poets. And I'll be listening to some of these echoes and memories in women's poetry, which I hope will also spark memories lost and found in yourselves. But let's start at the beginning. Here's a sonnet by EBB, but it's not one of her Portuguese sonnets, though it's certainly a love poem. You see this dog? It was but yesterday I mused, forgetful of his presence here till thought on thought drew downward tear on tear, when from the pillow where wet-cheeked I lay, a head as hairy as faunus thrust its way right sudden against my face. Two golden clear eyes astonished mine, a drooping ear did flap me on either cheek to dry the spray. I started first as some Arcadian, amazed by goatly god in twilight grove, But as the bearded vision closely ran my tears off, I knew flush and rose above surprise and sadness, thanking the true Pan, who by low creatures lead to heights of love. (laughs) 
Flush, as you know, was the name of EBB's spaniel. He was given to her by Miss Mitford at a time when Elizabeth was cast into a depression, physical as well as psychological, by the loss first of her brother Sam, about whom we've been hearing a bit in the last paper, um, who died of a fever in Jamaica, and then of her favorite brother, Bro, who mysteriously drowned in totally calm seas off Torquay. It was an inspired gift. The two women were introduced to each other at London Zoo, a place that was chosen to alleviate their mutual shyness. Animals, as we all know, allow for kinds of speech which avoid the need for direct communication. I'm reminded of another poetic duo, Elizabeth Bishop and Marianne Moore, whose literary relationship involved many trips to the circus together. The elephants with their fog-coloured skin and strictly practical appendages, I recall their magnificence. Marianne Moore wrote. Well, in EBB's poem, Flush cheers her up, cheers her grieving, first by instinctively sensing her misery, but also by giving her a moment of pure panic. That is the original classical pan-ick, when a sense of the animal presence of the god Pan could frighten human beings out of their social contracts. So this invalid's pet, and indeed pat, dog, is suddenly perceived as a goatly god in Twilight Grove, a figure from another place of strangeness, sexuality, nature in the raw. A dog, after all, is a riddling creature, both domestic and wild, humanised and beastly, a reminder and mirror of ourselves in many ways. Dog, of course, also spells God in reverse. And in this poem, Flush, becomes Faunus, the god of woodland and farmland, associated by the Greeks with the god Pan. After Hope End and Florence and Jamaica, which we've heard about today, I'm going to take you into some of the less literal pagan places of the imagination. Well, Pan, the ultimate goat god, also turns up in EBB's late great poem about creative work called A Musical Instrument. This is a poem that looks unflinchingly at the killing antics of the great god Pan, the god who turned the nymph syrinx into a reed and the reed into panpipes. It's a poem about attempted rape, 
violence and destruction, but also about recreation, power and music. Listen to how EBB captures the sexual energy of Pan. What was he doing? It begins, his clumsy animal movements, his godlike heartlessness. But also how she captures the lovely, fluty three notes of his pipe. So the poem becomes a song as you read. What was he doing, the great god Pan, down in the reeds by the river? Spreading ruin and scattering ban, splashing and paddling with hoofs of a goat, and breaking the golden lilies afloat with the dragonfly on the river. He tore out a reed, the great god Pan, from the deep, cool bed of the river. The limpid water turbidly ran, and the broken lilies a dying lay, and the dragonfly had fled away ere he brought it out of the river. High on the shore sat the great god Pan, while turbidly flowed the river, and hacked and hewed as a great god can with his hard bleak steel at the patient reed, till there was not a sign of a leaf indeed to prove it fresh from the river. He cut it short, did the great god Pan, how tall it stood in the river, then drew the pith like the heart of man, steadily from the outside ring, and notched the poor, dry, empty thing in holes as he sat by the river. This is the way, laughed the great god Pan, laughed while he sat by the river, the only way since gods began to make sweet music they could succeed. Then dropping his mouth to a hole in the reed, he blew in power by the river. Sweet. Sweet, sweet, oh Pan, piercing sweet by the river, blinding sweet, oh great god Pan. The sun on the hill forgot to die, and the lilies revived, and the dragonfly came back to dream on the river. Yet half a beast is the great god Pan, to laugh as he sits by the river making a poet out of a man. The true gods sigh for the cost and pain, for the reed which grows never more again as a reed with the reeds in the river. There's a little interesting difference um, between this and the earlier poem to Flush, Flush or Faunus. In the earlier poem, the true pan was capitalised and it offered a redeeming Christian message at the end. The true pan, who by low creatures leads to heights of love. But in a musical instrument, the true gods, who sigh for the cost and pain, are uncapitalised and plural, as if they were a bit less true, a bit more pagan. Their sighing is of no earthly use against Pan's seduction. 
It's Pan who makes and inspires music, laughing instead of sighing, careless instead of careful. EBB knew the classics, as we've already heard, had insisted on being taught Greek along with her brothers, but perhaps it was Miss Mitford's spaniel that gave her this vision of creativity as something ferocious, animal, and not licensed by the true gods. Well, in 1933, Virginia Woolf published her idiosyncratic novel biography of EBB. It's called Flush, and it's written from the dog's point of view. Woolf asks very near the beginning, was it Flush or was it Pan? Picking up on EBB's poem. She goes on to tell the story of how Flush, for instance, twice bit Robert Browning when he came a-courting. She tells the story of Robert's hostility to Elizabeth's paying a ransom to the dog thieves of London, who kidnapped Flush no less than three times. I don't think the Victorians used leads, but I don't know enough about dog history <laughs> to say. Um, and, of course, she tells the story of the couple's elopement to Florence, where Flush was allowed to roam freely, though he was completely shaved and pink as protection against fleas and the heat. Elizabeth Bishop, by the way, wrote a strange poem about a shaved, sick dog called Pink Dog. I wonder if Flush was in her mind. It's interesting, however, just how coy Wolf sounds compared with the sexual energy of a musical instrument. This is what Wolf writes about the Spaniel's goings-on. Now, Flush knew what men can never know. Pure love, love simple, love entire, love that brings no train of care in its wake, that has no shame, no remorse. So carelessly Flush embraced the spotted spaniel down the alley and the brindled dog and the yellow dog. The odd ineptness of that word embraced and the insistence on love suggests that Wolf in 1933 was much more inhibited than EBB in the 1860s. The Victorian poet knows her pan as a seriously unregulated force rampaging, pillaging, destroying in his appetite for a nymph or a song. Wolf sounds as if she doesn't ever quite get free of shame and remorse. Now, skip to a contemporary of EBB's who may or may not have known her work. We can't be sure. A servant recalled how, as a four-year-old, with the eyes of a half-tamed creature, Emily 
cared nothing for people and was only happy with her animal pets. This, of course, as I'm sure you've guessed, is Emily Bronte. A student at the school where she briefly taught remembered Emily's farewell speech in which she announced very blunt bluntly that the only individual she had cared about in the whole place was the house dog. After the death of his wife and two, um, and two children, Patrick Bronte bought a huge mongrel mastiff dog to protect his young family from possible Luddite attacks. The locals referred to it as a savage brute, liable to take an intruder by the throat and constantly in fights with other dogs. This beast, named Keeper, became Emily's dog and her constant companion. There were some lovely sketches by her of Keeper lying peaceably on the hearth alongside Anne's spaniel and the cat, and Emily herself reading a book with her arm round him. So clearly this was a quite gentle as well as a savage brute. And that combination is what Emily captures so brilliantly in her portrayal of Heathcliff in Wuthering Heights. It was Emily who usually stepped in to break up those dogfights and who, when Keeper once dared to lie on a bed, punched and beat him with her bare fists till his wounds bled. The sight of Emily and this huge dog striding across the Yorkshire moors together was what the locals remembered after her death. And indeed, at her funeral, Keeper lay between the pews and then followed the procession to the vault where she was buried. Maureen Adams, in her lovely book, Shaggy Muses, which I've drawn on a bit, points out that there are no poems about Keeper. But I wonder if she's quite right. In the Gondal manuscript, for example, there's a long poem which tells how the hero, Julian, goes down into the vaults of the grave to find the woman who is captive there. It's unclear whether the woman is dead or alive. Charlotte published part of this poem as The Prisoner, but Sharon is now going to read a section from the original poem spoken by the captive herself. And in it, the captive explains why her death-like imprisonment might in fact be a form of liberty. Yet tell them, Julian, all. I am not doomed to wear year after year in gloom and desolate despair. A messenger of hope comes every night to me and offers for short life eternal liberty. Comes with western winds, with evening's wandering airs, with that clear dusk of heaven that brings in the thickest stars. Winds take a pensive tone, and stars a tender fire, and visions rise and change, which kill me with desire. Desire for nothing known in my maturer years, when joy grew mad with awe at counting future tears. 
when if my spirit's sky was full of flashes warm, I knew not whence they came from sun or thunderstorm. But first, a hush of peace, a soundless calm descends. The struggle of distress and fierce impatience ends. Mute music soothes my breast. Unuttered harmony that I could never dream till earth was lost to me. Then dawns the invisible, the unseen its truth reveals. My outward sense is gone, my inward essence feels. Its wings are almost free, its home, its harbour found. Measuring the gulf, it stoops and dares the final bound. Oh, dreadful is the check. Intense the agony when the ear begins to hear and the eye begins to see, when the pulse begins to throb, the brain to think again, the soul to feel the flesh and the flesh to feel the chain. Yet I would lose no sting, would wish no torture less. The more that anguish racks, the earlier it will bless. And robed in fires of hell, or bright with heavenly shine, if it but herald death, the vision is divine. So this grim, deathly place turns out to be the place of vision, after all, the place which brings dreams and that messenger of hope. This underground vault of hell or death, which is guarded by a surly jailer, is the poet's chosen place in which to be tortured into hearing and seeing more intensely, more feelingly. Now listen to Julian's response. I heard, and yet heard not, the surly keeper growl. I saw, yet did not see, the flagstones damp and foul. The keeper, to and fro, paced by the bolted door, and shivered as he walked, and as he shivered, swore. In the manuscript version, keeper has a capital K. The surly keeper growls. This jailing keeper of the grave or vault, perhaps not accidentally, carries the name of Emily's dog. The guard and keeper, perhaps, of her freedom. When the ear begins to hear and the eye begins to see, she writes, echoing Blake's tiger, Another beast more powerful and strange than a mere tiger. If this is the condition of the imagination, it is a condition that relies on some beastly, prowling porter at Hell's Gate who keeps the captive in her visionary crypt. And I wonder if Charlotte Bronte had some inkling of this connection when in her novel about Emily, Shirley, which is also a novel about Luddite attacks, she calls Shirley's huge, dangerous dog Tartar. Tartar, meaning a rough Turk from Tartary, but it also, of course, has another etymology from Tartarus, the lowest part of the classical underworld. 
knowing what that place is like, yet being able to come and go from it in imagination is what this poet captive desires. The surly gatekeeper, then, is important since he guards the entrance to this underworld, just as in classical mythology, the entrance to Hades is guarded by another canine keeper, the three-headed dog Cerberus. Now skip to another Emily who lived across the Atlantic and shared some interesting characteristics with Emily Bronte, whose poetry she was very fond of reciting. Emily Dickinson was a deeply private person who found ways to preserve her imaginative liberty through a similarly self-imposed imprisonment at home in the company of other poets and a dog. Emily kept a portrait of EBB in ringlets. You've seen those portraits of EBB in her ringlets on her bedroom wall. And she read and she reread EBB's work, especially Aurora Lee. And in 1862, she wrote her own tribute to the foreign lady whose work had so inspired her own. Dickinson's cryptic, very modern sounding verse, with its many dashes and capital letters, seems worlds away from EBBs. Yet, as she tells, her own poetic voice was found very much through the enchantment offered by her predecessor. This poem is called, I Think I Was Enchanted. And it's a difficult poem. It's full of breaks in logic, but it captures the magic and the witchcraft of that foreign lady whose elopement and travels in Italy were beyond the wildest dreams of this very reclusive poet in Amherst. It's going to be read by Sharon. I think I was enchanted when first a sombre girl I read that foreign lady, the dark felt beautiful. And whether it was noon at night or only heaven at noon, for very lunacy of light, I had not power to tell. The bees became as butterflies. The butterflies as swans approached and spurned the narrow grass. And just the meanest tunes that nature murmured to herself to keep herself in cheer, I took for giants practicing titanic opera. The days to mighty meters stepped, the homeliest adorned as if unto a jubilee were suddenly confirmed. I could not have defined the change, conversion of the mind like sanctifying in the soul is witnessed, not explained. "'Twas a divine insanity, the danger to be sane. "'Should I again experience, tis antidote to turn "'to tomes of solid witchcraft. "'Magicians be asleep, but magic 
hath an element like deity to keep. EBB clearly inspired a conversion of the mind that helped Dickinson believe in her own work and find her own very different voice. But there was another figure in her life which also helped. To assuage her anxious, agoraphobic fears, Emily's father bought her a Newfoundland puppy. He was called Carlo, and he quickly grew into a huge, shaggy creature, almost three feet tall. <laughs> Emily was tiny, but she started to take long walks with Carlo in the hills around Amherst, now brave enough to confront the human encounters that she normally dreaded. And the picture is a kind of haunting double of Emily Bronte and Keeper. Carlo, whom Emily once described as her dog with ringlets, was he also an incarnation of EBB? Carlo was not only her guard against the world, but also her poetic confidant. Her letters, which are extraordinary, are full of accounts of their conversations. She wrote in one place, I talk of all these things with Carlo, and his eyes grow meaning, and his shaggy feet keep a slower pace. The dog is her advisor, reader, muse. She's the embodiment of a poetry which must grow meaning, perhaps rather than offer it straight. This is almost like poetry as if it's slanted by the different intelligence of the animal. Emily once declared that if she ever gained fame and publicity, the approbation of my dog would forsake me. Such approbation came first, because dogs, she once explained, know but do not tell. That her own poems, as you've probably heard, know but do not exactly tell suggests the extent to which Carlo came to figure the indirections of poetry that she was searching for. It's poetry that is wise, mysterious, telling, without necessarily having to tell. Here's an early poem, possibly written as an indirect love poem to her master Bowles, but which is also, like EBB's Flush or Faunus, a love poem to the dog. What shall I do? It whimpers so, this little hound within my heart, all day and night with bark and start, and yet it will not go. Would you untie it, were you me? Would it stop whining? If to thee I sent it, even now, it should not tease you by your chair or on the mat, or if it dare to climb your dizzy knee, or 
sometimes at your side to run when you were willing. Shall it come? Tell Carlo, he'll tell me. So Carlo was in some ways a passport to freedom in real life. In imagination, he was a kind of go-between, carrying messages to and from the world outside. Tell Carlo, he'll tell me. Thus ensuring, rather like keeper, that the poet keep her distance, her freedom within an apparently invisible or captive life. The little hound within the heart whimpers to be out and about, but remains tied by faithfulness, rather like Dickinson's own, own rather wild yet utterly constrained verses. There's a recent poem by a contemporary American, who I don't actually know, but I just found this by chance in an anthology, which begins rather jokily. At first, the whiskered professors did little more than smile at the grad student's idea that dogs could determine an author's style. But then it was confirmed that Dickinson had a dog, Carlo, and that he was the interrupting sort. And there was no way to show that those dashes weren't just barks recorded on paper. <laughs> it's daft, of course, but there's a grain of truth in it. Um, when Emily's mute confederate, as she called him, died in 1866, she never replaced him and her life became accordingly ever more homebound. All these Victorian dogs were in some sense practical solutions to the restrictions of women's lives, but they were also imaginative openings beyond those lives, openings into the strange, unlicensed places of creative work. And Emily Dickinson's is certainly one of the strangest. And so, to the 20th century. The two strands of my talk will now become a little looser. Um, but the sense of women poets looking to other women doesn't diminish. And the dog is still sometimes a figure charged with power. Four years after the publication of Wolf's Flush, Stevie Smith published her first volume of poetry called The Hound of Ulster. It begins with this poem. Little boy, will you stop and take a look in the puppy shop? Dogs, blue and liver, noses a quiver, little dogs, big dogs, dogs for sport and pleasure, fat dogs, meagre dogs, dogs for lap and leisure, do you see that wire-haired terrier? Could anything be merrier? Do you see that Labrador retriever? His name is Beaver. Thank you, courteous stranger, said the child. By your words, I am beguiled. But tell me, pray, what lurks in the grey, cold shadows at the back of the shop? 
little boy, do not stop. Come away, for the puppy, come away from the puppy shop, for the hound of Ulster lies there. Cucullin tethered by his golden hair, his eyes are closed and his lips are pale. Hurry, little boy, he is not for sale. Stevie Smith wrote several poems about a retriever called Beaver, um, though her biographer, when I asked, couldn't track any original. The original, of course, might just be the happy rhyme, um, the thing that often drives Smith's innocent-sounding but never innocent poems. What is not for sale among the puppy dogs here is this incongruous Hound of Ulster is the name given to the mythical imprisoned Cucullin from Irish legend. And in a way, the incongruity of this presence in the pet shop is the point. There are pet dogs and puppies sold for solace. And then there's this hound to which the child is unnervingly drawn. What is it in the grey, cold shadows at the back of the shop? Is it pain? Is it death? Is it metaphor? Things that puppy dogs are meant to cover up. And this child, like so many of Stevie Smith's, is perceptive enough to know that soft toy pets only distract from something the adult wants to keep hidden. Come away, he is not for sale. Dog, as EBB knew, is a reversal of the word God, sometimes a very dangerous kind of dog. Abandoning the safer distance of the classical stories, here is Stevie Smith confronting a dog God closer to home. Listen to how she catches the baby lisps of the children, how she finds a rather dangerous hound in the puppy shop in this poem. It's called Our Bog is Dude. Our bog is dude, our bog is dude, they lisped in accents mild. But when I asked them to explain, they grew a little wild. How do you know your bog is dude, my darling little child? We know because we wish it so, that is enough, they cried. And straight within each infant eye stood up the flame of pride. And if you do not think it so, you will be crucified. Then tell me, darling little ones, what's dude suppose bog is? Just what we think, the answer came, just what we think it is. They bowed their heads. Our bog is ours and we are wholly his. But when they raised them up again, they had forgotten me. Each one upon each other glared in pride and misery. For what was dude and what their bog, they never could agree. Oh, sweet it was to leave them then. And sweeter not to see. And sweetest of all to walk alone beside the encroaching sea. The sea that soon should drown them all. That never yet drowned me. <laughs> it's a funny, scary poem, 
in a way about the fanatical imagination, um, the, ha the pet that has died, has turned its loving followers into a potential lynch mob. And it's written in that false, naive voice which, Smith, which makes Smith such a good explorer of innocence, which is really not innocent at all. Well, in November 1962, we're sort of forging ahead in time, Smith received a letter from somebody who signed herself a desperate Smith addict and who asked if she might meet Smith when I manage my move to cheer me on a bit. The writer was Sylvia Plath preparing to move out of the family home with her children to London. Smith, who had come through her own depression, she had once lunged at her employer with a pair of scissors before turning them on herself, and then she was um, pensioned off. Smith might have been a good cheerer of Plath in her darkest winter, but alas, this is one of the great missed meetings of literature. And it's a reminder of how, even in the 20th century, women poets might need each other. Smith never replied, and three months later, Plath had killed herself. Dying is an art like everything else. I do it exceptionally well, she had once written. Unfortunately, it's not the dog, but the horse that figures in Plath's imagination, but it'll do as a substitute. Plath's one pleasure in her last years was riding out, riding away from home, children, and unhappiness, and an unfaithful partner, of course. Like Dickinson's dog, the animal step seems to suggest a pulse for poetry, free beyond human control. In this next poem, listen to how the horse of words, perhaps Pegasus himself, offers a way of escaping from the pool of tears that might drown the speaker. The poem's called Words, and it was actually written just a week or so before Plath's suicide. It lets us hear the kind of echoing resonance of language, those indefatigable hoof taps. Words. Axes, after whose stroke the wood rings and the echoes. Echoes travelling off from the centre like horses. The sap wells like tears, like the water striving to re-establish its mirror over the rock that drops and turns. A white skull eaten by weedy greens. Years later, I encountered them on the road. Words, dry and riderless, 
the indefatigable hoof taps, while from the bottom of the pool fixed stars govern a life. Dying is an art like everything else, Plath had written in her earlier poem, Lady Lazarus. Some ten years after its publication, Elizabeth Bishop published her own poem about an art that includes everything. But it wasn't the art of dying, but the art of losing. Bishop owned a copy of Plath's last volume, and she knew enough about suicide herself as two of her lovers had killed themselves, one of them her long-term partner, Lotta. Bishop's wonderful villanelle, which I'm sure you already know, is an elegy to Lotta, but it may also be a little elegy for her fellow poet, Plath who could not, in the end, master the disaster. Listen to how, in this poem, the repetition of those two words attempt to control the grief for everything that must be lost and that threatens to get out of control, but the poem remains incredibly controlled in its rhymes. If dying is an art, Bishop seems to say, so too is losing, and learning to lose is what the poet and the survivor must do. Sharon. The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day, except the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing farther, losing faster. Places and names and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch. And look, my last or next to last of three loved houses went... The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones, and vaster, some realms I owned, two rivers, a continent. I missed them, but it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, the joking voice, a gesture I love, I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing's not too hard to master, though it may look like, write it, like disaster. In spite of losing everything, health, wealth, memory, and time, this speaker still hangs on to the old instinct in italics and in brackets to write it. The dog or the horse of writing, of mastering the same old rhymes, must go on. And you can hear that sort of stoicism in um, Bishop's poem there. Write it. 
Well, many contemporary verses have been influenced by this villanelle by Bishop. One of them um, is by Anne Stevenson, um, it's, who was an early admirer of Bishop and a correspondent with the poet, and in fact wrote a book or two books about Bishop. Stevenson takes that phrase from one art to write it and writes a poem about the role of the poet. It's a wise poem, particularly relevant today, perhaps, when we poets are tempted by so many opportunities to go public, like giving readings. And here it is, Sharon again. You must always be alone. But don't beg a soup scrap of charity or bird crumb of tolerance. Shift for yourself. As furniture heaves off your life, you'll love your deliverance. Until loneliness slips in, scrawny and hungry. Miss loneliness over the barrenness bribing with company. Restlessness, one of her attendants. And the drunk twins, of course, memory and remorse. Refuse them. Stay faithful to silence, just silence, sliding between that breath and now this breath, severing the tick from the tock on the alarm clock, measuring the absence of else and the presence, the privilege. Thank you. Measuring the absence of else. I don't know what on earth that is, but maybe that's the point. Um, Stevenson's trying to make you listen outside time, um, outside the rational networks of communication. Perhaps listen to dream time or death time, which can only be measured in poetic language, which plays the clock, plays the breath against the clock, Absence against measure, severing the tick from the tock on the alarm clock. Very recently, in fact, it was just a few weeks ago, but I thought I'd read them anyway. Um, Stevenson, who I know well, sent me a little poem about a candle. As I say, she and I have known each other a long time, and we're usually each other's first port of call for reading a new poem. Um, and this means that we quarrel furiously. You won't have seen such email quarrels. <laughs> um, often we quarrel about religion, her rational atheism against my, I suppose, emotional Catholicism. And a hint of that debate runs through these two unpublished poems, which, if nothing else, suggest how poetic conversations can sometimes turn into poems um, I'm not sure these two have made it, but I'll read them to you anyway. The first one by Anne Stevenson is called Candles. What are they yearning for? Where are their bodies going, disappearing without dying under their rising souls? Do you think now we abandon them, they still live with us as symbols? Does working electricity have time for immortality? 
And she and I crawled over those last two lines uh, a lot. They may not be the final two lines once the poem's published. My poem is called also Candle, and it's dedicated to Anne Stevenson. It tongues the wind for those struck dumb, twists thin gold to a wavering tip, wicks a flaming, keeps its grip. So wistful, winning, this antic flare makes a symbol fit for cherishing, the while consumed by its own perishing, and seems a wordlessness that pleads, a footling prayer that hits no mark, a gleam of hope that shows the dark. Like any other cone or vine, its moment shines and then goes by, a mere sfumato in the sky. And yet, who knows, this candle spent still seems a speaking, like the dead in quietness, like something said. Perhaps poems are always conversations with other poems, conversations conducted through our sort of unconsciously memorising ears. And maybe that's why we need dogs. <laughs> I'm trying to keep the two threads running parallel. Dogs which, of course, are such long-memoried creatures. Think of Odysseus's dog, Argos, recognising him instantly after 20-odd years that he's been away. Dogs also listen more acutely, more wide-rangingly than we do. And perhaps sometimes we long to borrow their ears. So the dog can become a figure for what we long for in poetry, that it should set us remembering our lives, other poems, but also set us listening more carefully, more distantly to language and the strange places it can take us to. Well, a couple of years ago, I sent a chapter of my new book, which was called Hearing Things, so I'm sort of interested in the ear and listening. I sent it to um, the poet Alice Oswald, who's just become um, the new Oxford uh, professor of poetry. And she wrote back with a wonderful paragraph of memories, which I'm just going to read a part of it to you. She wrote, One of my earliest memories is of pressing my head to an emerald alarm clock, which first ticked, then skipped between ticks, then wobbled between skips, then shivered and jangled, and in the end I could hear whole symphonies between each tick. I suppose it was just the auditory imagination filling in the gaps, but I was always terrified of that clock and thought I had inadvertently discovered fairyland. It reminds me of Stevenson's alarm clock in that poem um, that was read. Oswald also tries to sort of sever the tick from the talk and opens up a terrifying, magical world. 
So listen now to this early poem by Oswald. Um, I think it's from her very first collection. It's a poem about gardening in the rain and about the rain stopping. I won't give you the title yet because it spoils the last line to give it to you. And Sharon is going to read this one. Two black critical matching crows calling a ricochet, eating its answer, dipped home. And a minute later, the ground was a wave and the sky wouldn't float. With a task and a rake, with a clay slow boot and a yellow mac, I bolted for shelter under the black strake dripping of timber. Summer of rain, summer of green rain coming everywhere, all day down through a hole in my foot. Listen, 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 listen. They are returning to the rain's den, the grey folk rolling up their veils, taking the steel taps out of their tips and heels. Grass lifts, hedge breathes, rose shakes its hair. Birds bring out all their washed songs. Puddles like long knives flash on the roads. And evening is come with a late sun unloading a silence. Tiny begin agains dancing on the night's edge. But what I want to know is whose is the great grey wicker-limbed hound like a stepping on coal going softly away? a wonderful poem, I think. Um, in the end, the rain dog kind of pads softly away, and the poem actually ends, which of course is the thing you can't hear when it's read out loud, um, ends with three ellipses, going softly away, dot, 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 which continues the pad, pad, pad of the hound's feet as it leaves. But it doesn't totally go out of hearing, it just goes out of our limited hearing. Well, before I wind up, um, I'll read another poem of my own, which is both about a dog and about writing. In the first part, um, it's in three parts. In the first part, I quote and play variations on one line by Christina Rossetti. I was sorry I couldn't bring Christina Rossetti in. I just couldn't quite find a poem that would fit this this route. Um, The line by Christina Rossetti is, I have no word, no wit, no way. It comes from a poem called A Better Resurrection. In the second section, I'm thinking about how being dog-tired is actually often when a phrase or a line comes to you and a poem gets started. So being dog-tired can be a really useful state. And in the third section, I recall an actual dog from my childhood. This was a rather wonderful black mongrel Labrador. It was a half-wild creature that would abandon us at the first scent of a bitch on heat, A dog that once escaped and crossed half of Edinburgh to find my mother who had moved out, having never been there before. It's just astonishing. I don't know how they do it, smell or whatever. And also a dog that, in a house full of music, which ours was, would raise its head and howl at the sound of a particular chord. 
It was the diminished seventh, this particular chord in, in music. So something about this beast's kind of ancient intelligence, uh, the wolf in him howling for the moon, I suppose lies at the heart of, of this poem about the difficulties of writing. It's called A Dog's Chance. No thought... I'm sorry, I got it wrong from the start. I'll start again. No call, no thought, no tone, no ringtone calling for reply. I play for time, waiting for a theme, no reason, wanting to say for starts even. No word, no wit, no way, no wayward start, no phrase to answer, explain. Fear at the heart, wolves at the door, the clock that clocks up daily. No stop, no hold, no hope, no threshold from which to stay this blank, this blight. Nothing to say, nothing to wish or write at the end of the day. Part two. Who knows, dumb beast? Why the mind is minded to rouse the tongue's articulate muscle. To catch as catch can the arch memory of a phrase, the chance medley of a line. Like dream in the logic of a find, discovering why. Who knows how dog-tired sometimes, beyond clear speech, the mind's long tongue-tied stretch catches haywire, some line of untried sense, invites like sound itself, nothing you'd think while thinking, nothing to tell, but something, listen, telling. Part three. I remember that beast, the loved creature here by the hearth, with leathery pin-cushion paws that twitch to a wish-list of cats and hares in a dream, and ears that scan my playing hands till the sudden turn of a diminished seventh rakes his nerves, and the dog-nap stresses like a wind-swept sea, the roused creature Waking to that strange modality of sound, fetches a call, queer lupercal from some ancient forest, and howls, howls for the white, unforgotten music of the moon. Eerie cantor, your shocking plain song sings. Nothing you'd know pictures that noise in you, sounding your whole body's strings. But just so, poetry begins. That dog in my childhood probably lies behind this whole talk. Um, there's something in the intelligence of dogs which corresponds, perhaps, to the paraverbal communications of poetry or music to something ancient, physiological, unpredictable. 
It is, of course, an area currently being seriously reassessed by our society, as I'm sure you know, as dogs are being brought into schools to help children read, into hospitals and hospices for their tactile comforting, and now, even in my own university, to help relieve student anxiety and depression. Between human dogs, uh, sorry, between human beings and dogs, there's, a, there's an interesting slip. Um, there's an old, fascinating relationship which goes back into prehistory. Dogs have been found lovingly buried beside human beings since at least the late Paleolithic, which is about 12,000 BC. Well, that brings me to my final two poems. Is it okay if I take five more minutes? Um, final two poems, which come back to where I started, with A.E. Stallings, who I think is a super poet. The first of these, I wanted, um, I wanted Sharon to read this, but she said she couldn't, so I'm going to read it, and then she's going to read the last one. The first is called An Ancient Dog Grave, Unearthed During Construction of the Athens Metro, so here's an ancient dead dog. It's not the curled up bones, nor even the grave that stops me, but the blue beads on the collar, whose leather has long gone the way of hides, the ones to ward off evil. A careful master even now protects a favourite, just so. But what evil could she suffer after death? I picture the loyal companion, bereaved of her master, trotting the long dark way that slopes to the river, nearly trampled by all the nations marching down, one war after another, flood or famine, her paws sucked by the thick caliginous mud, deep as her dew claws near the riverbank. In the press for the ferry, who will lift her into the boat? Will she cower by the pier and be forgotten, forever howling and whimpering, tail tucked under? What stranger pays her passage? Perhaps she swims, dog paddling the current of oblivion, a shake as she scrambles ashore, sets the beads jingling, and then that last tense moment, touching noses, once, twice, three times, with unleashed Cerberus. It's a touching poem, I think. Um, imagining the owner of a beloved dog somehow hoping to speed it on its way in the underworld, where dog to dog it might eventually meet that old keeper, unleashed Cerberus. Somewhere in this poem there's Emily Bronte too. But to end on a note of celebration, um, one last poem by Stallings addresses all those sister poets whose imaginative descent into the imagination's dark places means that they have to be both Eurydice and Orpheus, both lost and found, both woman 
and poet. Whether it's she who learned to master the art of losing, Bishop, or she who did dying well, Plath, or she who was Amherst's bell, Dickinson. Their Orphic songs must somehow get past the ferocious keeper at the gate in both directions. So from EBB to A.E. Stallings, women poets have lost and found each other throughout the centuries. I've traced a journey which is full of recognition and admiration and even quarrels between them, as well as between them and the dogs they have harboured or loved or imagined. And even in this last poem, as you'll hear, there's a very brief encounter with the old keeper of Hellgate who guards the way down among the dead, then back up into song. So, song for the women poets. Sing, sing because you can. Descend in murk and pitch, double talk the ferryman and three-throated bitch. Sing before the king and queen, make the grave to grieve, till Persephone weeps kerosene and wipes it on her sleeve. And she will grant you your one wish, to fetch across a river, black and sticky as, sticky as licorice, the one you lost forever. Don't look back, but no one heeds. You glance down in the water, the image drowning in the weeds could be your phantom daughter. And part of you leaves Tartarus, but part stays there to dwell. You who are both Orpheus and she he left in hell. Thank you very much. Thank you for an astonishing journey, Angela. That was just amazing. Starting off from EBB and then heading in all those doggy directions. It was just amazing. Thank you. And wonderful to hear all those kind of different voices. I have a list of poems that I'm going to go and have a look at now, which is amazing. Um, can I also just take this opportunity to thank Sharon, who has been reading mm. all the way through. <laughs>
legacy or any number of legacies you know, that come through that. So this is really just space if you know, people have comments or questions, we're really happy to. Or additions, anything yeah, you want to yeah. add. We didn't really have space for questions in the morning. No, sort of rush no. Through. So mm -hmm. like if, you, if you remember anything Simon and I said that you want to quickly drop it, do yeah, come yeah. back to us. Yeah, hi. Um, yes, keep going to slate rate. How do we know that she was that? I mean, we've all, I think I'm shouting loud enough anyway, but um, I mean, we've all wrote poems. I mean, I, I mean, I'm an amateur writer, that's all, but I do write a bit, play about things that, we, things that I mean, I've wrote one where I was actually, a girl was pregnant, pregnant in Penzance. No one's ever got pregnant as far as I hopefully not, <laughs> for me in Penzance. I mean, you know, how do we know that that is actually true? Or is it just the fact that her father was in the trade, slave trade? And of course, naturally, she would talk about it. How she know she was concerned about it? Is it the runaway slave? Yeah, no, and anyway, it's I was only really. You know, I mean, the best poems were the best ones that come really from the heart. Were love poet, love sonnets, which were brilliant, all of them. And also towards the end, when she was dying, when she was very, very ill, she came up with some most incredible poems. Then, and that's when, because in my opinion, I've read quite a lot of them, and they were the two that really hit your head, heart, not the runaway slave. And I wonder if it's actually was actually looking at it. It's actually. Making an issue which is not there. Making an issue that she... Uh, no, I mean, she wasn't that concerned about slaves. She just... In fact, the father was in slave trade. She would ultimately write, write about slave trade. She wrote about it a lot in her letters. Yeah, but letters have been proved wrong, haven't they, lately? Uh, Shakespeare letters have been questioned, and one or two others have been questioned. How do we actually know that they're actually not a um, something, letter about something else and actually using slave trade to talk about something else? as we all, all do that, actually mention a word and actually talk about something completely different. Use it as a metaphor almost. I, th I think one thing we've got here is, is the amount of them, so the mm. amount of letters that are addressing mm. Well, I'm, I'm not a different man. I'm, I'm, I'm I've never actually read any, so I'm, no, not, um, no. I'm just it, asking. It's really kind of explicit, and the amount of engagement with <laughs> the, the notion of slavery, both in the letters and in the poems, and dealing with the family background, it feels like the weight of material there, you know, and knowing what we know about the family gives it that kind of genuine sense. I mean, the whole family, I mean, if the family talked politics at dinner, uh, it wasn't like the silence in Mansfield Park where no one wants to talk about yeah, slavery. Yeah. I mean, slavery was, you know, it, it provided the income and, and the occupation, and the boys are sent out specifically to manage the different estates and all the senior relatives. So it, it was mm. the stuff of the everyday. So yeah, I understand family. that. I understand that. The, yeah. You know, his wife was also came from slaveholding family. So, you know, you, mm. it isn't it isn't something as it was for certain people. But again, more and more of them, Browning's family, uh, Robert Browning's family, were, were also had their money from the slave trade. Though uh, Robert Browning's father. Um, refused to take that inheritance. He was so against slavery. Uh, so if this isn't something remote over there or something a sort of do-gooder thing. It, it was, it, you know, it, 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 it was, it was part of the quotidian, everyday experience of family life. And she writes about it and thinks about it from mm. her early teens onward. It, it hovers over it. There are plenty of the mixed-race family who come to England who are companions to the, the white <laughs> family uh, who come to study, you know, and 
as I say, when she uh, when she's married, when she gets married, oddly, she says, uh, you know, to Robert, shall I say Elizabeth Barrett from Cinnamon Hill? Now she'd never been to Cinnamon Hill. It was an utterly, <laughs> you know, it was, but it was the family estate. And even though she hated slavery, that was somehow her reflex to think that this is where the family originated. This is where she was, as it were, from. So it, it's not something far away, I think. I, I, yeah, I mean, that's the, I think because also her father was born in Jamaica. Yeah. Um, Sam, her brother, who she was very close, another brother she was very close to, died there. Um, she had uncles coming backwards and forwards all the time. It just is very evident, looking at her work, that this was something yeah. that was discussed. And even on her grave, wasn't there the manacled yes. hands? Who requested that? I can't remember. Mm -hmm. Um, so it seems like from birth yeah. to death this uh, was something. That's understandable. But, yeah. but, but yeah. not, but not I just, it wasn't, yeah. the, you know, it was, it was one of many things yeah. that she was concerned about. And, and I mean, yes, there yeah. has been an emphasis on that. I mean, at the end, the, her poems are when she was dying were fantastic. Mm -hmm. When they're talking about space and all the rest of it, she was almost looking at death mm -hmm. in an incredible way. The last few, last few, a whole batch of poems about when she, was, she knew she was going to die, and they, they were brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. First of all, I'd just like to thank you all for a fascinating day. Thank you very much for all your many, very thought-provoking and interesting things you've said. I've got a question for Angela Layton, if yeah. I can see you. Um, uh, you gave us an amazing sort of whiz through um, of women's voices after Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Um, would you have um, been willing, or uh, we haven't got another hour, but would you have been willing to do the same thing um, for men's voices? Or do you think there's something special about the way in which Elizabeth Barrett Browning influenced and was noticed by um, women poets? After all, um, the, the musical instrument does say making a poet out of a man, doesn't it? Um, I'm sure she could have, I mean, it's not just the rhyme, she could have fitted in out of a, a woman. But Wouldn't have fitted the meter. No, but I mean, she could have found a <laughs> yes, way of doing yes, it, couldn't she? Yes. Um, do I think she means man generically, though. Than, yes, yes, so I mean, it, it includes both, doesn't it? Yes. Um, I mean, do you think that there is something special about um, women poets and the way they're influenced by her? I think there's something special, certainly about 19th century women poets, and that's to, just to do with history, really, that poets always need predecessors. Um, and, you know, we all look to models, examples, people we want to imitate or, or, or reject. Um, and I think when you haven't got very many examples there, um, you, you look all the more closely at the ones that are there. I think it becomes less important in the 20th century um, when the whole field is much, you know, kind of fuller and bigger and there, there are great women poets, no question. But for somebody like Barrett Browning and Emily Dickinson and Emily Bronte as well, you know, they're, they're living these often quite secluded lives about Browning at the beginning. And 
and, and trying to find a poetic voice by themselves, you know, rather than going to school, learning Greek, um, you know, getting meters beaten into them by schoolmasters. So your question, would I, could I write a similar one about men? I think I could. Um, I think there are similar, possibly not the same, not the same, but there are patterns um, of influence and debt in male poets as well. Um, poets who look to each other for sustenance and, and, and aid. I mean, do you as a poet look mainly to... To women. Uh, to other women poets, or do you... I actually think I look to both. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, it would be a pity. You know, I've, I've, I've written quite a lot about male poets as well as women. All right. And, uh, you know, you can't ignore the men. <laughs> so, yeah, Thank both. Okay. But I had to, because of today being about EBB... Oh, yes. I, and because I, I, I had to sort of that. find a way of just mm. limiting the... the, the like, you know, the poets I was talking about, um, I decided to focus on the women and on women who had looked to each other a little bit. Um, no. Okay, thank you. Any other questions? Yeah, hi. Do you think you can come back next year and fill in the, the brown gap? What, the Robert Browning gap? Do Robert gap? Browning. Yes. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Robert. Oh. Yeah. Robert who? Who's Robert? <laughs> <laughs> or do them together. Yeah. yeah. It would be interesting. It's interesting that because when I was first writing about ABB uh, and, and, and when I was writing a, an introduction to an edition of Aurora Lee, I made this decision, this is in the, er, you know, the earlier days of feminism, that I wasn't going to talk about Browning's influence or the cross influence. Mm -hmm. I wasn't going to do the poetess married to Robert Browning. And you can see that moment in the 70s where I'm really resisting. Yeah. And looking, I reread it recently, I thought, what the, you know, how could I not talk about, you know, that interaction? How could I not talk about the poetic interaction? After all, she mentions him in, uh, in this poem, before she meets him, she's reading him. He writes to her and says, I love your... God, I mean, the end of Fleabag has nothing to it, you know. <laughs> um, if you've been watching Fleabag, any of you. Um, you know, she nice says, I love your verse, Miss Browning, he writes to her, and I love you too. You know, now... You that know, was the first line of the first letter. Yeah, the first yeah. line of the first letter. <laughs> well, she, she resisted for a long time, but... They could do that, so... You know, so somehow, I mean, you, you have to put them back together. Uh, and now I think is a moment where, uh, you know, her, her reputation and reputation of women's poetry is such that I wouldn't have made that decision. <laughs> but it's of the moment, wasn't it? It was necessary yeah. at that point so much. And, and also, you know, there's so much in, in that, in stuff we didn't quite talk about, but her dramatic address, her use of the first-person voice, the, you know, the, all those wonderful Browning sort of monologue poems with different voices, yes. uh, you know. And of course, she was much more famous than he, but they both share that interest in kind of, that the immediacy of an address, we're talking about the talking voice, the voice of the, you might call it, of the, of the Victorians. So it would be very interesting yeah. to talk about those. The one I always like in that is a, a poem called The Seraphim, 
and uh, it's two angels looking at the crucifixion um, from heaven. And, um, and it's this dialogue, and it feels to me an early exploration of that kind of dialogue, love of voice that she's playing with all the way through. Jennifer, did you? Sorry, I saw you waving your hand. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I mean, I couldn't say much more about Wolf, but Wolf had several dogs, and yes. they were obviously quite important to her. Um, um, but I don't know that letter. Yeah, there's sort of that affect and their relationship yes. to yes. being able to talk about that. Yes. And I think it's the discourse of sentimentalism that mm. is so sort of um, a burden, really. actually I think did because she talks in this long letter that's appended to Kasagidi windows to her sister there's a little balcony so they could actually go out onto the balcony yeah. Yeah. and if you if you go there I mean I, you know everybody had, when I went in 1980 or 81 or so you know it, it, it's very close to the pity palace so the roof was actually really through under the, under the window so she could see it and afterwards uh, when the you know when the thing had passed, the three hours had passed and they'd gone through, and we all know watching demos how they could do it. They 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 walked through the crowds. They actually walked through the crowds to the up to the river. Oh, 
it's it's a great it, it, it's a great letter, you know, because as I say, she almost translates the letter into the mm -hmm. opening of the poem, and Julia Marcus uh, puts the letter in the back of the edition of Casagidi Casagidi Window. So I, I think I think this she's not inventing. I mean, she's you know she's marking all the things. I left out a bit about all the you know all the trades and tradespeople who were there. Um, they're not questioning that it was just that it seemed to me that one would read the poem slightly differently if, if yeah. indeed she was in the romantic tradition imagining. Yeah. But this, this I think she didn't imagine, and she was almost had the she almost had the high that you get when you go to a demo, you know, and you and they were waving their handkerchief, you know, they were waving at the crowds to show their things, so they felt they were on the demo. Whereas, you know, as as many people have pointed out, except for going and rescuing Flush, she doesn't go to, say, Giles or any of these, any of these ghettos. And although there are many literary representations and social reformers discuss it, maybe, you know, everybody is talking about, you know, the, the state of, uh, of the poor, Dickens, of course, many, many times, and so forth. Um, and so, so, although her discussion, her her poetry about it is incredibly precise mm -hmm. in its way. I, I didn't give um, the passage where she's going to visit Marion Earl again at the top of this, uh, you know, of this slum, uh, right at the top where she lives. But she passes all these people, and she makes it a very visceral, physical. You know, she's being sort of jostled and jeered at uh, by the people, as you can well imagine. There she is in her dainty gown. So this is an that is an imagined encounter. And it's also an encounter that um, that appropriates other people's descriptions, some of which may also be imagined, but some of which were probably from the men. And so we were, you know, we're more robustly actually visually seen. Uh, so you know, they're, they're different in that way too. Uh, I, I think. Um, Thank you. That, that parallel to Casagrigi windows always strikes me when they're. When they're in Paris and watching Napoleon, yeah, yeah, yeah. coming from that window, and, and um, it's essentially, I, I in, in a really nerdy way, tried to find you know where it was, and headed up you know the Champs Elysees, really towards the Arc de it's really up there, and uh, was hugely excited and desperately disappointed that what I think was their apartment is now above the biggest McDonald's you can ever see. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's horrible sinking moment of like. So many reviews. You said the um, 1838 volume, and then poems of 1844 really feels to me to be the, the kind of breakthrough book in, in a text in, in so many ways, and getting you know, astonishing reviews, and, and of course, in the kind of 
um, it's often couched in terms of, yeah, this is good poetry for a lady kind of stuff. But there's a recognition too of the absolute kind of you know, power. And, and if we if we think by kind of 1850, and I know this is a bit kind of you know, anecdotal, but the the discussions around the next poet laureate, you know, it, it seems in part, you know, there is, it always seems to me there is kind of a genuine push to uh, kind of acknowledge that probably she's never going to get it because we've got to wait till Caroline Duffy for a, you know, I want to say on the laureateship. But like the actual discussion of, of possibility there is is really important. So yeah, so she's she's getting absolutely you know very very visible in in a lot of ways. And, and are they being written by um, poets or by um, journalists? I mean, who's writing these? It's a whole spate, isn't it? Yeah. I mean. Review of, of, of poetry and fiction takes up a lot of pages of, of, of a huge, you know, a huge number of magazines that the middle classes read and that she herself read all the time. They're quite a huge. There's Blackwood's the Athenaeum, there's, mm -hmm. they all have yeah. different political inflections. Yeah. Some are more Tory, some are Whig, you know, yeah. but they're very interesting, you know. and. When you read these reviews, you realize it's not like today's reviewing. Yeah. There's a lot of descriptive reviewing yeah. of what's actually in a book. And a lot of quotation. And a lot of quotation, and, you know, to sort of give you a feel for the thing. And there's commentary, but you're sometimes frustrated because you want to think, what do they really think of this? Yeah. You know, the, the kind of cutthroat, cutting to the thing, this is good, this is bad. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and, and she was very good, you know. She was pretty tough-minded. She actually, she liked... You know, the pros and cons of the reviews interested mm -hmm. her. You know, yeah. she didn't, yeah. she wasn't shy about that. And when she imagines, and she sort of, <laughs> she sort of takes all this this literary culture into Aurora Lee. We didn't read all those bits yeah. where she talks about, it, but she she imagines herself, which she did a bit, but you know, writing all these, you know, writing for all these journals, which women writers did. Oh, did they? So there were. Oh yeah. Female as well as male reviewers. She, she was always up for criticism. You know, there's, so there's a lot of imagery of being pricked with a pen and being damaged. Yeah. Images of, of, of damage against the body. That's right. And, and, and uh, which was astonishing. You know, and uh, and she said, you know, she'd much rather have you know a critical analysis of her work, which she can learn from or, or get get a sense from. So it was it was this bold bold vision all the way through. And the Queen read Aurora Lee. Yes. We'll never know what she made of it. <laughs> <laughs> when she'd finished reading in memoriam, you reckon, yeah. <laughs> next bedtime book. Because Tennyson, of course, was the one that got the laureate yes. yeah, you know. She thought Tennyson was much better, you know, he, he'd really like writing all those kinds of poems you have to write as a laureate, you know. <laughs> Which, even though she'd written these two poems about the Queen, is not, not really yeah, what she was up for. Yeah, I'd love to see what for. she'd written if she yeah, got it. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, again, she was living abroad at this stage. So, you know, it, it's when Wordsworth dies in 1850. Yeah, so, yeah. She, even as an outsider, she was still being considered, you know, an expat, yeah, she expat. was still being considered. Yeah.
Well, I wonder, I would quite like to ask the audience, yeah. people who live around here, mm. how much they already knew about Elizabeth Barrett and and if she's, if you know of her as a, as a local poet. Well, I think she's quite, um, I was saying earlier, I think we talked a bit about this, this feeling that we've got um, societies for um, John Maysfield and yeah. we've got um, the different poets society cool. and we don't have anything really yeah. at all. And so um, I feel that's a shame because there's been a lot of energy around those poets, mm. and, you know, mm. preserving them, making displays, museum displays, little archives yeah. in the libraries yeah. and nothing at all. Nothing. Oh, it's got a panel. It's in the library, the youth centre, the old library, the youth centre. Isn't that dedicated to her? Is that somebody was telling me that there's a tower which was actually donated, given by Edward Barrett. And, um, and oddly pushed by Ryder Haggard, which I thought was a. Uh, oh, is that right? It's, 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 it's called the Barrett Browning Institute. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. Uh, so, um, but, uh, and, um, but there's no. I don't think there's any further. I don't think there's much connection with the plot. No. So the plaque says something like, you know, not dedicated, but, you know, put up there by. But I think there was some, from what I'm hearing, there were some moves afoot to reuse it as a poetic space. I don't know. Oh, which would, I suppose, be appropriate. We proposed making a house for poetry in that building. Is that right? Um, and, and, uh, so we haven't uh, yet, as yet persuaded the people who own it that that would be oh. the best use for it. But it feels to me like it would be. Keep chipping away at that. Yeah, yeah just chipping yeah. away at it. And, I think lots of, well, I, I have people around here who, who became interested in Elizabeth Barrett Browning through knowing of, about the area around Hope End. Yes. You can, I don't know whether you've been there. Yeah, I have. Um, yeah. But, um, uh, you, you can walk up past it and you can look over onto the kitchen garden, mm -hmm. which has now been turned into a private house, but until um, 20 years ago or so, it used to be still a kitchen garden. Yes. And I think I'm right in saying the stables are still there. And there's a clock there, which you're going yeah, to see clock. from the public footpath. And uh, it used to be a hotel, didn't it? And it's now privately owned, I believe. And um, I have been there on uh, sort of open day. And um, the owners there, <coughs> you can be them, don't you? You've met them, but they're, they're very interested in the um, heritage of Elizabeth Brown. But the countryside around there, um, is very much um, evoked mm. in um, of all the reading. Yeah. It's about um, her country, the countryside she writes about in the first part. Yeah. I, mean, I think people would, would, would get to know it through that. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming. Yes. And, yes. Uh, and for staying the course. Of <laughs> yes, amazing. Yeah. 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 So yeah. thank you very much. Yeah. I think whatever level we came in with, we're all leaving vastly enriched. So, you know, there's definitely, definitely um, <laughs> the case. It's been very, very interesting. Thank you to everybody for being here. And thanks for 